0: Ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages, well, if you're 21 years of age or older, unless you're from Canada or Europe and then you only have to be 18, I don't know anything about the liquor laws of the rest of the world. But anyway, from their latest album, Go Climb a Tree, and performing the very appropriate for this show, The Beer Song, The Brews Traveler presents Gaelic Storm!
1: Now there are those who like to think We'd be best without the drink No beer or ale or frothy pints of porter So let's hypothesize How it would change your lives If everyone were only drinking water There'd be no public houses No bars to take us spouses No party kegs or cans to celebrate of visions, regrettable decisions. No excuses to be coming home too late. So brothers, sisters, it's time to take a stand. You can pry my beer from my cold dead hand. Raise them up, raise them up and Swinging from the rafters No bleary morning after We wouldn't challenge strangers to a fight There'd be no singing around the fire With a drunken boozy choir We'd all be home and tucked up for the night We'd have no way to wake the dead We couldn't wet the baby's head Or toast the bachelor bride to be. We'd have no cheery fight to suck Watching Ireland lose the cup. Break them down. Barmaid, every waiter, both sides of the equator, would be out of work and living on the door. The wealth of every nation depends upon libations. Here it seems it's worth its waiting door. Well, we've assessed the pros and cons, taught about both the rights and wrongs. The hellfire into which we could be hurled. Now get that pint into your face. You can save the human race. You're drinking for the future of the world So brothers and sisters, it's time to take a stand You can fry my beer from my cold hand Raise them up, raise them up and drink them down, drink them down. Yeah, raise them up, raise them up and drink them down
0: This is episode number seven.
2: Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman.
0: Thanks, Jessica, and hello, everybody, and thank you for finding us out here in the podcasting universe. I am your host and the chief cat herder around here, Alan Tatman, coming to you recorded live in front of a studio audience. Well if you count a labradoodle and a calico-tabby cat as an audience, here at the home studio in the scenic capital of Jefferson City. And if I sound a little nasally, a little sinus well, I was out in the yard. We had a beautiful day here in mid-Missouri. I was out in the yard doing some yard work, and I think I ingested a little bit of pollen. Uh, yeah, we'll get through it. We'll be fine. We've got beer. We've got uh other medicinal alcoholic spirits if we need them. So this week, uh, we're talking to the brewmaster and founder of Urban Chestnut Brewing Company of St. Louis, Florian Kuplunt. Florian is a native of Germany, and his story of how he got to where he is today is a fascinating road, and you'll want to hear that in a bit. We've also got uh, Tony Rehagen reporting in with a story about brewery names and beer names and copyright laws. And I've got an RV rookie report. Sometimes the simplest things are the stupidest answers. But first, before all that, let's take a look at what many consider the world capital of brewing, Munich, Germany. I know, I can't drive the RV to Munich, Germany, but... Let's say there was a bridge. Let's get on down the road. And now we head on down the road with the Brews Traveler. Where will the
2: highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find
0: out. Okay, quick. When you think of famous brewing regions of the world or famous brewing cities, what first comes to mind? Did you think Bavaria? And Munich? I would suppose it is possibly the world's most famous beer brewing region. I mean, it was the birthplace of Reinheitsgebot, the German beer purity laws, introduced by Duke Wilhelm IV of Bavaria in fifteen sixteen. The decree allowed only hops, barley, water, and later when they discovered that what yeast was as the only components allowed in the brewing of any beer in Bavaria. For 500 years, this recipe had served Bavaria very well, and then for the last century, the rest of Germany. Besides being the birthplace of Reinheitsgebot, Bavaria is also the home to the world's oldest continually operating brewery. Why in Steffen Brewery? Frankish Bishop Corbinian arrived in Bavaria around the year 720, and he founded a church in honor of St. Stephen. The church morphed into a monastery at first run by the Augustinians, but was eventually taken over by the Benedictines sometime in the latter years of the first millennia CE. And it was they who brought the tradition of brewing to the monastery. The nearby city of Freising licensed the monastery as a brewery in 1040, which today the modern brewery of Wiensteffener Beer claims as their founding date. The monastery and the brewery were secularized in 1803, when the brewery became the possession of the state of Bavaria. Today, the brewery is known as Bayerstadt's Brewery Stefan or the Bavarian State Brewery Y. and Steppen, which is operated in conjunction with the University of Munich. Keep that in mind for the time being, okay? Perhaps the other thing that Bavaria is most well-known for is its world's biggest kegger, Oktoberfest, held annually in Munich, It's a 16- to 18-day folk festival running from mid or late September to the first weekend of October. More than 7 million people from around the world attending the event every year. Locally, it's called Wiesen, after the name of the fairgrounds where the celebration is held, Teresa's Meadow, which in German is Teresa Wiese. Oktoberfest is an important part of Bavarian culture, having been held there since the year 1810. Massive quantities of Marzen, that's the official style of lager of Oktoberfest, are consumed. As much as 8 million liters every year, which is just a little less than 3 million gallons, which equals about 93,550 barrels of beer. The first Oktoberfest was actually a wedding reception held on the 12th of October in 1810 when the crown prince of Bavaria, Ludwig, married Princess Theresa of saxe hildburghausen Say that real fast. The citizens of Munich were invited to attend the festivities held on the fields in front of the city gates. There were horse races and drinking and more drinking and games and more drinking, and the people of Munich had so much fun, they decided to do it again the next year to celebrate the royal couple's anniversary. And that was how Oktoberfest became an annual tradition. Now, in 1813, the festival was canceled because Napoleon was invading Germany. Yeah. Leave it to a Frenchman to ruin a German party. Kidding, kidding, kidding. Love the French, love their wine. Their beer sucks, however. In 1819, the Munich City Fathers took control of the festival. The festival was moved up to the last two weeks of September from the original October 12th, with it ending on the first weekend in October. And the reason for this was better chance for good weather and longer periods of daylight. World War I brought on a suspension of the festival from 1914 to 1918, and then again from 1939 to 1945 because of World War II. Over the 208 years since the first Oktoberfest, the festival has been canceled a total of 24 times. Only beer conforming to the Rheinheitsgebot and brewed within the city limits of Munich can be served at Oktoberfest. Beers meeting this criteria are designated Oktoberfest beers. Ta-da. The breweries that can produce Oktoberfest beer under the aforementioned criteria are Augustiner Brau, Hacker Schor Brau, Brau, Polliner, Spaten Brau, and Stadtlichs Hof Brau München. Oktoberfest beer is a registered trademark by the Club of Munich Brewers, which consists of the aforementioned six breweries. But while it would seem that there would be nothing but fun going on at Oktoberfest, anytime you invite seven million people to a kegger, there are bound to be problems, both logistical and practical, especially with trash and toilets. Oktoberfest every year, produces about 1,000 tons of rubbish. The mountains of rubbish are hauled away and the fairgrounds are cleanly washed down every morning, and that's paid for by the city of Munich and the commercial sponsors of the event. In 2004, the queues, that's the line outside the toilets, became so long that the police had to regulate access to keep traffic moving through the toilets, Men were asked to use the urinals, which now the urinals were just like a box and a grate on the ground and you'd just pee at the in the hole that's underneath the grate. Consequently, the number of toilets was increased by 20% in 2005. Approximately 1800 toilets and urinals are now available at the festival. But Not everybody going to the toilets are going to do a number one or to drop a deuce. Oktoberfest can be very noisy with all the oompa bands and the singings and toastings and so on. Many festival goers visit the quiet toilet stalls to use their cell phones, which has caused inordinately long lines for those who really need the facilities. For this reason, there was a plan in 2005 to install a Faraday cage, that is, an enclosure that blocks magnetic waves from entering or exiting around the toilets in order to dissuade people from sitting on the can too long. Another thing that was thought of was, we'll just use mobile phone jammers to prevent telephoning with those devices. However, jamming devices are illegal in Germany, and Faraday cages made of copper would have been too expensive to build, so these ambitious plans were dropped, and then they did it like anybody else would. They put up a sign saying, please don't use your phone while you're sitting on the stool. The final solution, however, was quite simple. Play loud, amplified live music in all of the toilets. This led to people coming and doing their business and then moving on. So, so much for a quiet constitutional at Oktoberfest. Anyway, Munich in Bavaria has a well-deserved reputation as the world capital of lager beer, with its long and storied history of brewing. And that just happens to be where this week's guest is from. Florian Kuplant is the founder and brewmaster of Urban Chestnut, is a native of Munich, and he studied at Bayerische Staatsbrewery Weihenstephan, the oldest brewery in the world, through the University of Munich, where he received his master's degree in malting and brewing sciences. Now, how he got from Munich to St. Louis, well, I'll let him tell you that. So, here it is, from our visit to St. Louis back in May... This is your interview of the week.
2: Now it's time for the interview of the week, and let's meet our guest. Whether they be a craft brewer or brewing advocate, they're sure to have a story you'll want to hear. And now, here's Alan and his guest.
0: Hi, everybody. We're in St. Louis, Missouri in the Tower Grove neighborhood, and we're at Urban Chestnut's Grove Beer Hall right here in the heart of... Of the city, and I'm here with Florian Kuplant, owner and founder of Urban Chestnut Brewing. Florian, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to uh, be on the Brews Traveler. Thanks for coming in. Uh, we we appreciate it, and I know you're very busy. Uh, you got a lot of things going on. As anybody that's a that's a follower of Urban Chestnut knows that. Not only do you have your beer hall here, but you also have your uh, that's your original location, Correct, yeah. and where's that? What's the address
3: on that? Uh, it's in, on, on Washington Avenue, fairly close to the Fox Theater, about two blocks east of, of, okay. of Grand Avenue, 3229 Washington, so. All right,
0: and is that where you do most of your, uh, are you doing most of your brewing here, or there? So we brew all the larger
3: brands, the larger volume beers here in the Grove, so Twickle, for example, is, is, is made here, and uh, a lot of the smaller seasonals, draft-only releases get, get uh, brewed at Midtown.
0: Your background is fascinating, I mean, uh, you came a different route than most craft brewers in the United States, Uh, where did you come from and how did you get here? So I
3: grew up in a small town in Bavaria about an hour east of Munich, Uh, worked for some local breweries there. worked in Belgium, England, and then eventually made my way to the US, worked for New England Brewing Company way back when, and then uh, ultimately got a job here in St. Louis with Anheuser-Busch, and uh, worked several years here in, in their corporate brewing department for the most part.
0: Now, didn't you work on the, uh, they were doing a series of kind of experimental craft beer. Wasn't that where you... Yeah, we we, we released some
3: uh, Michelob uh, craft beers or specialty beers. I was uh, working on several of those.
0: Well, what motivates a guy that's working for one of the largest brewing corporations in the world, what motivates a guy to say, okay, I'm going to do this myself?
3: Well, I, even, I think it
0: started in brewing school when we
3: were able to kind of create our own beers on a very small scale system, uh, just being able to experiment. We did a lot of experimentation at Anheuser-Busch, but it was always kind of targeted toward potential new products. And obviously the market for AB is different than for a smaller craft brewery. So being able to uh, create our own beers, come out with new styles, use different hop varieties, different malts, yeast types, was just one of the main reasons why why I always wanted to do that and uh, got the opportunity in, 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 2010 to uh, leave A.B. and then start Urban Chestnut with my, my business partner, Dave.
0: So, so eight years now you've yes. been out mm-hmm. there. And what um, I guess the answer to this question is probably pretty obvious. Why, why St. Louis? I mean, you don't have roots here originally other than you came here to work for A.B., why did you pick St. Louis?
3: Well, there was a pre- very pragmatic reason. we were already living here, so it was kind of natural to stay here in St. Louis. But also, the beer culture is very much rooted in the history of St. Louis. There's a lot of German influence on brewing, obviously, and people are into beer with a lot of breweries over time that, that uh, have been around. So it made natural sense to just try brewing here again and, and bring back some of the... Uh, interesting recipes that have been used in the past
0: the name urban chestnut it's a great name But tell us, how did that come about? So our approach
3: is to, we basically have two series of beers. One's called the Reverend Series, where we try to recreate very classic European styles like our Bavarian Swickle or English-style beers or Belgian-style beers. But we also experiment a little bit bit, and call that series the Revolution Series. And that's kind of also reflected in our name. Uh, The urban part stands for the resurgence of craft beer in urban centers like St. Louis, Portland, San Francisco, and so on. Um, and the chestnut part comes from the uh, use of chestnut trees to shade beer cellars. Ba- back when they didn't have artificial refrigerations in breweries, they basically planted those chestnut trees over those beer cellars to keep the sun away, and then eventually figured out they could sell some beer under those trees, and that's how beer gardens became to be. And that's kind of a tie-in into the uh, to the old world because basically. they had a heavier canopy than most other Correct, deciduous. The, Trees. Foliage is very dense in those trees, okay. yeah, make it makes sense. We were definitely looking for something that made sense with that old world, new world approach and I think that's, that's pretty well reflected. Very good. And who's Dave? That's my business partner who I worked with at AB. Uh, he's basically the marketing and, and sales guy, I'm the, the brewing guy, so we, we kind of split our, our duties. And, nice. and, uh How big is your brewery here? So the brew house is 60 barrels, uh, and we did about 21,000 barrels total here in the U.S. last year between the two breweries, uh, and then Germany's about another three to 4,000 barrels.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. We were talking about this earlier. Tell it. Uh, you have a sister, well, it's not a sister brewery. It's your own brewery in Germany. Where's it at? It's a, in a town called Wollnzach, which is about...
3: 30 minutes north of downtown Munich, um, right in the center of the hop-growing area called Hotel, Right. a uh, small town, about seven to 10,000 people, so it's a, it's a very Kinda local a approach to selling beer, making beer and selling beer. The birthplace
0: of German lagers.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, it's much.
0: definitely there, yeah. Which leads me to my next question. I mean, most American craft brewers are ale-centric. I mean, they're using, the, I would say 75% of the beers that most craft brewers are brewing are ales. They're using ale yeast. You guys are almost just the opposite. Almost almost that same ratio of your beer is lager, and I'm sure that comes from your educational and your traditional background. Yeah, it's definitely probably pretty close to
3: 75% lagers that we brew, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a love for that type of beer, I guess, or for that, that uh, segment of, of the beer category. Um, it's just typically some very sessionable beers that you can enjoy a couple of and, and uh, have generally a, easy to drink but have a lot of subtleties, and you can find some of the complexity in those beers
0: as well, even if they're only four to five percent alcohol. When do you think... We got away from making rich, full-bodied lagers in this country, because that's what the German immigrants, when they came over in the 1840s and 1860s, they were making full-bodied German-style lagers, and then now most of the big guys, their their beer resembles nothing like German-style lagers. Yeah, I guess I'll have to speculate a little bit. I'm sure some of it is, is
3: cost savings opportunities. Some of it is, is kind of a approach to more mass market uh, marketing and sales where you have to make one product that appeals to a lot more people. And I think that's probably those those two reasons probably
0: are responsible for that uh, loss of flavor, if you, if you will. Yeah, so, well, I guess we can, we can say basically your portfolio tends to lean towards the lager style. Um, what other types of beers have you guys been experimenting with? I saw on your list out there you had a, a, a Dry Stout, uh, I'm sure that's an Irish style, named yes. Kinsale, which is one of my favorite places in, in Ireland. And so what other kinds of beers are you guys doing besides lagers? I mean, we pretty much do
3: anything across the board. We have some IPAs that are uh, fairly big sellers for us. Uh, We do a a Bavarian-style wheat beer that's a a big seller, uh, especially in the summer. Uh, Pretty much anything across the board, from very light to to very heavy, very light to very dark. Uh, Some of them seasonally, some of the beers are kind of a mainstay in our taste rooms and and, in the beer hall. And we may do experimentals where we try a new hop variety and just do one batch to see how that goes. Uh, We just did a Pilsner with a German variety that's fairly new called Ariana and uh, also Callista and just yeah, testing out new things and, and see, seeing how they impact the beer that we make with those ingredients. What's your number one selling brand? Twickle, which is a yeah. unfiltered Bavarian style lager, very classic, uh, about 5% alcohol, moderate hopping, nice malt character, right. uh, just enough hops to kind of balance the sweetness and kind of a nice, very subtle hop aroma that you can pick up when you when when smell the
0: beer. Was there ever a day that really challenged you and you said, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> when I, I left a good job, <laughs> and why
3: am I doing this? Very few days, um, uh-huh. I mean, the worst day that I, I, I tell the story we, when we were installing our bottling line at the uh, original brewery at Midtown, we bought a used filling system that was quite a big machine and of course I thought, well, no problem, we'll just rent a bigger forklift and we can get it into the building, no problem. Uh, figured that was. We ultimately found out it was a little bit harder to do that, so we had to call a couple people that knew how to actually handle that equipment. And we were able to get it in there, but yeah, that was probably yeah, that was a rough day.
0: What's been the best day? What what day did you say? Yeah, this is why I'm doing
3: this. There's so a lot lot of good days, I guess. Uh, pretty much any day when you walk through the brewery and we have people in there and they they say hey, just stop me and say hi and just t- want to talk about beer and, 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 and uh, are excited that we're here and, and, and enjoy the beers that they're c- drinking. So that's, that's, that's always very rewarding. Uh, yeah, Something else is working with hop farmers, for example, to just kind of see what their challenges are and how they operate their business and how they grow hops, for example. And that's, that's always fun to be able to see from
0: see their, from their perspective. I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, one of my questions uh, was, what challenges have you... Seen in the craft beer industry, and what do you foresee as to being the future challenges of of craft brewers in America yeah, I mean I guess growth
3: is definitely an interesting challenge because we 've many like many brewers have seen pretty 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 big growth and kind of managing that growth, making sure you have people in place to handle the day to day operation um, it's it definitely that's definitely challenging. Making sure you have the equipment in place, brewing equipment is fairly capital intensive. So just kind of working that, working on that, and, and making sure that the finance, financing aspect works, but also on a uh, ingredient level where we have to work with suppliers to make sure that we have the right hop varieties, for example, for the beer styles that we're brewing. It's not always easy to forecast this beer is gonna be a big seller, and it may not be in two years, and then kind of projecting that out a little bit, just making sure you have the right ingredients for the beer styles you're gonna be brewing in a couple years, because the uh, hop market is a a fairly long-term business. You wanna make sure you have enough for the next few years, and projecting that out definitely makes it a little bit
0: harder. What can uh, fans of Urban Chestnut expect to see in the near future? Something different, something exciting coming down the like
3: pike? There's always something exciting. Uh, this weekend we have our MyFest, for example, that we have some new beer, uh, beers that we have done before that we bring back. We just released a Rattler, for example, that's another wow. a German uh, basically beer lemonade blend or mix. Yeah. It's very refreshing, it delicious. Good, for, good for the summer. Yeah, and then we, we uh, I mentioned hop uh, trials before, that we kind of do on a consistent basis, and, and it's always, there's always something on tap that, that may be interesting, maybe different. So when people come in here, we try to keep anywhere from 15 to 20 beers on, different beers on tap at both breweries, and so you get a pretty good mix, mix of different styles and different trials, as well as our, our,
0: our uh, uh, beers that we brew year-round. Well, uh, thank you. We end every interview with the lightning round. Okay. You got five questions. Your category is know your nuts. That's so, going to be interesting. No, ah, so, nah, it's, it's, it's very easy. Okay, so here we go. Number one, pecans or hazelnuts or filberts, as you call
3: them. Uh, I definitely go for hazelnuts because my mom used to make or makes a, a hazelnut cake, and I love that. Fantastic. Number two,
0: macadamias or cashews. I'll go with the cashews. All right. Number three, black walnuts or English walnuts? I'm supposed to know the difference between the
3: two.
0: <laughs> I'll go with the English walnuts. Yes, that's the milder of okay. the two. Yes, yes. Uh, number four, this is easy peanuts or corn nuts? Definitely peanuts. Yeah, yeah. And last, horse chestnuts or buckeyes? Well, since we're a brewery named after Chestnut Trees, I'm going to have to go with the Chestnuts. I think so, too. Thanks, Florian. You're very welcome. I appreciate you taking the time. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're in St. Louis, you want to have some exceptional crafted lager beer, please stop by Urban Chestnut at either one of their locations, and post Prost. Thanks again to Florian and to all the great staff at UCBC for their hospitality. Um, After I met Florian and I did the interview, I began wondering... How many brewery founders in the history of St. Louis were from either Munich or Bavaria? So I did a little research. I didn't go to a great depth. Adam Lemp, the founder of the first German brewery in St. Louis, while he was ethnically a German, was actually from Switzerland. Eberhard Anheuser, although his first brewery was called the Bavarian Brewery, He was from the Rhineland, the province of the Palatinate. The Bavarian brewery which he had purchased was founded by a German immigrant, George Schneider, who may very well have been from Bavaria, as there is a George Schneider & Sons brewery in Munich today, dating to the 1870s. Um, But I could not make that connection confirming a relationship between The George over here and the George over there. Adolphus Bush was from the state of Hesse, and Anton Greasy Dick was from Westphalia. So, without any better information than what I was able to just dig up with a cursory look through the internet, Florian may possibly be the first Bavarian-born brewer in St. Louis. Like a lot of craft brewers, Urban Chestnut is very involved in community charities, and one of the neatest ones, I love this, Dog Day Fridays. You can come to the breweries and their outdoor areas, you can bring your pets, and in conjunction with Ralston Purina, 20% of all sales from Dog Day Fridays benefit a weekly featured animal organization through the Pet Finder Foundation, which gives fellow pet lovers and beer lovers alike a simple way to help local adoptable pets find forever homes. Beginning in April and running through September, they feature a different local animal shelter at each Dog Day Friday, so folks can meet adoptable pets and the people who foster and devote their time to help these animals out. Not only do they hold Dog Day Fridays, but For every eight-pack of their Urban Underdog Lager, they donate $5 to animal adoption programs in the city. What a great cause, and they are to be commended. Urban Chestnut Brewery has three locations in St. Louis, the Grove Brewery and Beer Hall, located at 4465 Manchester Avenue, and across the street, the Urban Research Brewery at 4501 Manchester Avenue. The Midtown Brewery and Beer Garden at 3229 Washington Avenue. And for times and dates of opening hours and events, especially their Dog Day Fridays, check out their website at UrbanChestnut.com. Hey,
1: ha! Da 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 da! Ha! Hey! Cardi on scale a buco! What's the rumpus?
2: Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing?
0: Hey, Tony. Hey, how's it going? Not bad. How are you?
4: Doing all right. Doing all right.
0: You got to have a good Sunday?
4: Yeah, not not too bad. A little restful. We, We... Got the girls running the
0: sprinkler outside. Now you've got the work done, but yeah, pretty good. Yourself? Oh, great! I got out and did some yard work. It's finally not so hot that you you feel like you're going to pass out if you know you stay oh, out for there. Sure. If you stay out there, I think it's coming. I think it's coming back. Yeah, yeah, it is coming back. I mean, it's July. It's the heat's yeah. coming yeah. back. We just we had a couple of nice days, so you got out and did what you need to do. So damn right. I've got these. Something's going on in our elm tree. I'm going to have to get a arborist over here or something, but there's this black stuff that's falling off the leaves. I think it's probably some kind of parasitic waste or something. It's falling all over the patio. It's like, yeah, it's gunky. Yeah, pretty nasty. So anyway, where are you off to this week?
4: Uh, Wednesday, I'm heading down to Nashville, Tennessee. I'm doing a travel story for uh, my old magazine, Indianapolis Monthly. Cool. I haven't been there for a few years.
0: What, uh, What story are you working on?
4: It's just it's basically a travel piece on a, a little bed and breakfast down there, like the Urban Cowboy Inn. I think it's called
0: <laughs> the Urban Cowboy Inn.
4: Something like that, yeah. It's, it's like a bed and breakfast, uh, some sort of like luxury, super nice place to stay. Apparently, so looking forward to that. <laughs> okay, have fun. Right?
0: Yeah. Exactly. I'm off to Kansas City on Tuesday, and then Omaha Wednesday, Des Moines Thursday. Hopefully, I get to uh, Decorah, Iowa, on Friday. Hopefully, nice, for Toplin Goliath. yeah, Toppling Goliath, and then uh, awesome. I'm trying to get connected with New Glarus for Saturday. And then I'll be in Ch- I'll be into Chicago for a couple of days after that. So, nice, nice. Yeah, little trip around. So anyway, what have you got for us this week? Well,
4: uh, I got something that uh, popped up from uh, one of my old papers, the Columbia Missouri. And, uh, a couple other stories that had it, but um, Logboat uh, Brewing Company out of Columbia, Missouri. Um, basically, they uh, in May twenty seventeen they were sued by Shipyard Brewing Company in Portland, Maine, uh, over Logboat's Shiphead Ginger Wheat. And uh, basically, what Shipyard was claiming was that the name and the can design was intended to deceive consumers into thinking they were buying Shipyard's beer, which not only has the name Shipyard, but it also has it has names like Pumpkinhead and Melonhead. So the ship and the head were kind of the points of contention. Uh-huh. Well, a couple of weeks ago, that finally got uh, finally got resolved. Uh, the US district judge Nanette Lowry uh, ruled in favor of Logboat saying there was no such evidence of any kind of intent like that. And that while the words like ship and head are associated with the main beer, they're you know, they're generic words. You can't you, you know you can't copyright the, the English language. And and furthermore, like the compound shiphead isn't even a real word. I mean it's a total made up thing. So and it came from uh, apparently the the shiphead, which is a, a great beer one of the, one of logboats, one of my favorite from logboat. Yeah, it's a good um, beer. For sure, It came from like a 2003 painting of a woman with her hair made up to look like a ship, that was done by a friend of one of the logboat founders, and they ended up using it. That's the that's the design that's on the front of the
0: can. Yeah, I met their artist. He's really he's kind of a cool cool fella. Yeah, he does all of their their can design and stuff. He's I think his name's Wolf. I think it's his last name. Cameron. That sounds right. That sounds yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. no, I,
4: and I love yeah I love their cans and I love their their design and stuff. Um, and and the, the, the other thing that uh, Logboat always argued and they did this on their website was that it was never challenged during the trademark registration process, which kind of shines a light on something that's really a, a big issue, um, you know, in craft beer, like coming up with the names. Because if you think about it, I mean, you really got to be careful because if you if even if you're right and have a good case, uh, you get into a legal fight with a bigger regional brewery or God forbid, you know, one of the big boys like yeah. AB InBev. Right. Uh, that can put your lights out quicker than like a, than uh, a Belgian trouble. No it's insane. Yeah. And sometimes it gets kind of ugly, so it's good to be careful. Uh, you know when you're when you're picking out picking out your name. So I, I did some research into actually how they, how you do that because um, it's something I, I think a lot of people don't think about when they want to start a brewery. Um, the Gerbin Law Firm, a leading trademark firm uh, based in Washington D.C., says basically it's, it's basically a three-step process. And like number one, it's coming up with something original, you know. And that's that's kind of the thing. And it's just like anything, you know. You 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 had your own business for a long time, and, and the podcast is its own business. And I do the same thing as a freelancer. Like you you want to do what you're good at, but then there are all the other parts that, like you know, you get into it. You want to you want to, if you're a businessman or you're a brewer, you want to do these things. But then you also got to know how to you know have to know accounting, or you have to hire an accountant. But, uh, or a lawyer. And you also have to like come up with ways to market your product. Um, and that sounds easy, but like, just imagine how many breweries there are out there and multiply that by the dozens of beers each one puts out, you know, and then, and then try making up words or compound words or phrases, you know, like shiphead for, for every beer you do. And I mean, uh, you know, I mean, some, some breweries put out 30 to 40 different beers a year. That's insane. Um, yeah. So basically, you know, you go and do a web search, you know, you check out the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website, which has like its, its trademark electronic search system. And then I have then Google it for good measure. And then um, if you have something you think is original that thinks, you think works, you got to fill out all this paperwork. And, you know, the review process can take like six to eight months. Um, yeah. And in that time, like the brewers can still market their beer, but uh, they got to use the TM for trademark instead of the R that will come with right. the, uh, the approval from the patent office. But like, and it's weird, it's another, the other thing you know about from starting a business is the hidden expenses. Like, I mean, according to Forbes, a non-refundable filing fee for, um, for one of these, for each trademark is like $300 a pop. It can be up, up to $300 a pop. And so, like, if you're talking like a modest-sized craft brewery that makes those like 40 to 50 beers a year, I mean, that's going to add up pretty quick. But right. it's nowhere near the cost that goes into going to court. If yeah. You well,
0: so, my experience was, I of course, I called I called my attorney here, John Landwehr, and when I started this project, and I said, um, who's the best attorney in? In Missouri, on trademark and copyright, and he said this gave me this lady's name, Grace Fishel. She lives in Creve Coeur, and then, you know, I wrote her a check, and she did all of the background stuff. Came That's back, nice. yeah, came back. The Bruise Traveler, Bruise Traveler, it's clean. And some people have used it in uh, as title for a story here and there, but nobody was using it like their as their moniker, except a few guys on Facebook, and there's nothing I can do about that. But anyway, sure. um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's not cheap, but no, but if you plan on you think this is going to be something that you're going to want to make money off of um, and just to protect your identity, really. Uh, you've got sure. you've got to do it.
4: Well, you know, I've never asked you. How did you come up with
0: the name for Brews Traveler? Well, I was laying in bed watching Anthony Bourdain, and I thought, is there somebody that's doing something like Anthony Bourdain except with craft breweries? And I got up immediately. I came up to the office, and I started banging around on the computer, and I found I the name just came to me, the Brews Traveler. Um, So, yeah, I just started banging around. I found well, I don't see anything out there, but I got to make sure. So I called next day. I called John, and John said, "Call Grace." I called Grace, and boom, and that's that's how it all came about.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's good, and it it works, and it's. I've always liked the name. Uh, and it's weird, you know. You look at it and you, you know from just drinking around that you see all. I mean, you could tell when people are just like they just come up with the weirdest names you can possibly come up with. Uh, so I did a little research too to kind of just kind of look and collect some of the some of the crazy names. And I got I got a list for uh, I got a list for you here. Okay. There was the uh, the purple monkey dishwasher chocolate peanut butter porter from <laughs> Evil Genius in Philadelphia? Okay. They have uh, the Gandhi bot, like like Muhammad Gandhi, double IPA from New England uh, stone brewing, of course, has a pretty bad today. Um, and then of course the ever popular riffs on hop. I mean, everybody that has a hoppy beer, a hoppy IPA has to come up with something. The ones I found were hoppinator, hoptimus prime, robo hop. And then Palo Alto brewing has hoppy ending. And then my favorite one is this, uh, stouts out of Allenstown, Pennsylvania. They're smooth hopperator. Uh, and then, um, there's also evil twin, uh, brewery, uh, which has just the craziest names, like Sour Bikini, even more Denmark, Hello My Name is Sonia, which is an Imperial IPA, Naked Lunch in Copenhagen, Copenhagen Heavenly Resto. And then my favorite is they have this uh, they have this beer called Joey Pepper, but the barrel age is called Joey... Football player! ...pepper. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
4: so like... But and then my and then there's a there's the you can tell sometimes they they uh, they go they go a little blue to try to get it even more exclusive. There's uh against the grain in Louisville, which is one of my favorite breweries. But they have citra down double IPA, obviously using citra hops. Pile of face American IPA, and then the brown note, which basically <laughs> the can is a picture of an of a naked guy in Tidy whities with uh oh <laughs> back there. But it's a, it's a brown and it's actually pretty tasty. I really, that one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, of course, there's our friends, uh, Mothers. They do MILF. Right. But it's, a, yeah, and it's, and it's you know, that sounds dirty enough on its own, but it stands for Mother's, uh, what is it, Mother's Imperial Liquid Fantasy, which yeah. sounds even dirty, dirtier than milk to me, so, but it's so good. Um, there's the Pearl Necklace Oyster Stout from Denver's Flying Dog. And then this one, which is appropriately uh, called the Polygamy Porter from Wasatch Brewing, which you'll never guess what state that's made in.
0: Uh, Utah.
4: Correct. <laughs> so we know it has about like two percent alcohol, but it has a, it has a cool name. <laughs> but yeah, that's so those are the ones I came up with.
0: As these brewers, you know, one of the things is is you know you got to come up with names for your stuff. That's part of the creative thing about it, you know. It's part of the fun too, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, sitting around, what are we going to call this? Mm, you know, something pops into somebody's head, and I'm sure it gets talked about. Well, that's interesting. So the guys at Logboat um, on that uh, on that judge's uh, decision, did uh, mm-hmm. the Shipyard have to pay all their legal fees?
4: You know, I'm not sure about that. I think they just threw it out. But I I, uh, I need to I, I could look into that.
0: We'll look, look it up, and maybe we can make that a side note for next week's episode. So, anyway, anything else? Nope, I think that's, that, that's all I have for you this all week. All right, man. Tony Rehagen, freelance journalist. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate your help, and uh, you have a good time down in Nashville. And you. Uh, you have a safe trip. I will, and I'll talk to you next week.
2: All right. Take care. See you now. Here's Alan with the RV Rookie Tips for Travelers as you head down the road.
0: You know uh, how sometimes when something isn't going the way it should be and you call someone to help and they do the simplest thing and it fixes the problem? Don't you feel like a complete monkey-loving idiot? I did. Okay, so here's what happened. Marilee and I took off for a weekend early in June with our friends John and Gaila and Sheila and Brian. All of us have RVs. Now, Along with us, John and Gila have a motorhome, and Brian and Sheila have a trailer. Well, we went down to the southern end of the Current River in the Ozark National Scenic Riverways. We did some boating and kayaking and drinking beer, and then Sunday came, and Marilee and I didn't have to be anywhere until Monday evening, Monday afternoon, evening. And while the other two couples headed back home, we decided we'd go and stay another night at Bennett Springs State Park before heading back to Jeff City everything went fine overnight and we chilled out the next day because park has a very liberal checkout time of two o'clock in the afternoon. But when we went to break camp and load everything up and get out of there, the slide out on the RV wouldn't retract. Now, if you don't know what a slide out is, it's an extension of your living area, which an electric motor will move out when you're stopped and you can extend it out to give you like another three or four feet of living area inside the motorhome, but I couldn't get it to retract. The motor isn't even making any noise when I push the button. So first, we go online to see if there's a quick solution to this problem. There were some suggestions such as resetting the control panel on the motor, try to push the slide out back into the body of the motorhome manually. Uh, then there was some complicated stuff like opening panels and disengaging gears, which, believe you me, I have no more business doing any of that kind of Big than a jellyfish does. So I called the dealership, and they had a laundry list of things to try, which is the same stuff that we found online. Yes, we did that short of taking the Woo, thing apart. So they tell me to call the manufacturer's hotline. So I call them, end up waiting on hold for over a half hour. I get a representative on the line. He also asks if I did all of the things that we found online. And yes, we did, short of taking the superstar apart. And so he tells me to call roadside assistance. I do. They contact a guy in the area, and we waited some more. He finally shows up, and he asks... Did we do all of the things that we went through and found online? And yes, we did all of those things, short of taking the monkey lover part. But he goes through all of those things that we had already went through ourselves and that we found online, and short of taking the you-know-what apart. And he says, hmm, okay, let's try one more thing. So he crawls under the slide-out where the control panel for the electric motor is, and then he yells, Try it now! Which I did, and... Zippity-doo-dah! If it didn't retract, it came back in. I rushed out to him. Okay, what did you do, I asked. I unplugged it, he said. Let it set for 30 seconds, then plugged it back in. And I said, So, like rebooting your modem and Wi-Fi at your house? And he's like, Yeah, more or less. What would cause that, I asked him, and he shrugged his shoulders. Beats me, and then he gave us a bill for $435. Good thing it's still all under warranty. <laughs> I assure you, I am not a complete idiot. Some parts are missing.
2: been listening to the bruise traveler follow us on facebook twitter and instagram or check out our blog on website the cheers
0: that's it everybody thanks for listening if you'd like to show us some love please head over to itunes and give us a five-star rating write a glowing review also like us on soundcloud and stitcher it is greatly appreciated Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Brews Traveler podcast and on Twitter at the Brews Trav LR. Please share the podcast with your friends. It's real easy. Just copy the link on SoundCloud, Stitcher or iTunes and send it to them in a text or an email or Facebook or whatever it is that you use to keep in touch with your friends. The soundtrack for The Bruised Traveler is most generously supplied by our friends at Gaelic Storm. Their new album, Go Climb a Tree, is available on iTunes along with the entire body of their work as well as at their website, GaelicStorm.com. Check them out and see if they're coming to a venue near you. Their next dates are July 19th at the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts in Findlay, Ohio, and July 20th at the Cleveland Irish Cultural Festival. Tickets and information available on the website marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. I'm on the road this week. Tomorrow, that's Tuesday, I'll be dropping in on Boulevard Brewing and Strange Days Brewing in Kansas City. Wednesday, I'll be in Omaha at Infusion Brewing. Thursday, at Exile Brewing in Des Moines. And Friday, hopefully, we can get a time worked out to drop in and see toppling goliath in Decorah, iowa so if i don't see you at your favorite tap room or pub i'll see you right here on the podcast and remember drink locally think globally take care of each other take care of the earth it's everything we've got and as always merrily you are the measure of my dreams thanks again everybody and so long for just a while
5: Away from misery, rummies and rats and tarry jacks, my only family. The island of salvation is still a scream away. As the lungs of night blow out the light, my heart kneels down to pray. Warm as frozen fire She had the loyalty of a cat Behind those pale green eyes And through her cherry lips The devil slipped a thousand lies A clan of robes and vagabonds Occupied her head That thieving van took a pale white hand Stole her from my bed Like a ghost ship in the night She drifted out once more To land upon the sand I'm another lover, sure. Oh, I did take her. She meant so much to me. Now a wretched soul and a plan. There's just the ache that'll haunt me till I die When those winds of vanity no longer blow our west I pray they'll guide her home and put my heart to rest A press can fill a man of war to make the black-mouthed cannon roar Now all my trade is born and blame But forevermore Let sting the salt and spray The ocean's and squall A stumbling right eye on the deck
0: those who will risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. T.S. Eliot, born September 26, 1888, St. Louis, Missouri, died January 4, 1965, Kensington, London, United Kingdom.